0: you also just have to look at the traditional rivals of the pashtun to never mind the taliban so you're looking at uzbeks t- same people tajiks turkmens in in the north and they're never going to accept pashtun rule never mind taliban rule there might be a short term deal but these are these are enemies and so it remains to be seen how it how it plays out but um, i think we're going to see the same groups opposing the taliban as we had in the 1990s <laughs> Toby Harnden is an
1: awarded journalist, foreign correspondent, former bureau chief of the Sunday Times. His most recent book is First Casualty, the Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11. After numerous interviews with key players and having visited Afghanistan several times over the last decades, Toby writes about unconventional success story of cia's team alpha from their insertion into the darius valley coordination with special forces oda 595 link up in cooperation with northern alliance commander abdul rashid dostum he's quite a character leading to the fall of the taliban at the end of 2001 Toby brings his well-informed insights about some of these initial players, including David Tyson, J.R. Seeger, Alex Hernandez, and their ride on horseback north with Dostum to mazar sharif along with the first casualty, Michael Johnny Spann, and the events at the Kuali Ijian G. Ford complex. We discuss the complexity and the accomplishment of how these few intrepid officers and operators transcended traditions, tribes, allegiances, and history in an operation that holds clues to the future of Afghan resistance to the Taliban. Begin transmission now. So let's 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 talk about this. I mean, the timing of your book, um, first casualty. It's extraordinary. Obviously, uh, you've been busy. I, I like to ask people this question, but maybe could you just describe, from your point of view, the the reception that the book is getting at the at the moment?
0: Well, very pleasing. I mean, it's it's been in waves because initially people are hearing about the book and they haven't read it.
1: <laughs> right. And
0: Afghanistan was very much in the news. And so I was getting sort of a lot of people sort of talking about what went wrong and um, the evacuation and, and you know, w- whether there'd been poor planning, which I think the answer was yes. So there's a lot of stuff sort of about the politics of it. You know, then we went into 9-11 anniversary because the publication was like four days before 9-11. But now we're getting into because people have read it and are reading it. And it's now there's much more of a focus and an interest in the characters. Uh, which are the core of these eight members of mm. cia's team alpha um and mike Spann, obviously who was sadly killed was was one of those but david tyson who's the uzbek speaking uh case officer who was with mike Spann in the fort people people are now sort of latching onto. wow you know this is a, a story about real people with real characters and a sort of a real narrative so that's you know that's very pleasing
1: and I, I don't know how much you've been kind of covering or working with Afghanistan in the last 20 years, but is it a little challenging to to try to define and stay in your, your particular scope of expertise or is it pretty broad? I mean, I imagine people are saying, oh, a book about Afghanistan. What happened in those 20 years? Why did we fail?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, de- you definitely get a lot of that. I mean, I mean, fortunately, I am pretty conversant with Afghanistan over that period of 20 years because... Um, I first went there in 2006 and been there many times since. But I was very I went in very deep in the sort of 2009, 2010 period because I wrote my second book, Dead Men Risen, which was about um, a British battle group in Helmand in 2009. And then now, I mean, I was I was in Afghanistan for six weeks um, at the end of last year speaking with a ton of Afghans. In fact, I didn't speak to I didn't do an interview with a Westerner and I didn't see a single American or NATO troop in that in that period, and then of course the book uh, first casualty is very much about the beginning, about the first few weeks of the CIA-led war. Then, in two thousand and one, so I actually do feel I have a pretty good visibility and experience and expertise in in that twenty years. So, so I'm I I feel pretty comfortable in talking about the 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 range of, of of what's happened. Although I do want to focus on, I mean politics. I don't know. Politics increasingly kind of bores me in a way. I mean, if if, if you're talking about writing a scene in a book and and it's who said what in the White House situation room, that interests me a lot less than, you know, who was saying what as they were getting onto the helicopter in K2 base in October, 2001, you know, sort of real people.
1: Well, you definitely bring me right to that place. It was gripping. I mean, I wrote reading on Twitter where people are saying I couldn't put the book down. So I kind of put it off a little bit thinking, okay, I'm going to need it. I'm going to need a good stretch of time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the word coming out is that it's hard to put down. So but uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, your book is pretty much the first boots and hooves on the on the ground. You mentioned, um, this is kind of a broad question. What I really want to get at is sort of the differences in the roles of the CIA in the Special Operations Forces? I mean, you said the CIA had been there a couple of years prior, probably longer. David Tyson had studied all those languages. I think J.R. Seeger had been there. I'm not really sure.
0: Yeah, well, he'd been in Islamabad, so he wasn't actually in Afghanistan, as far as I know. But yeah, he was in Islamabad working with the Mujahideen in the 1980s. But yeah, his experience went back. Uh,
1: I, I guess what I wanted to know was, like, the CIA had already been there. I mean, they brought in this Team Alpha. Maybe you could describe, like, who's actually on a CIA team like that and how they integrated and adapt to work with the special operations teams.
0: Yeah, well, all that was fascinating um, because going into this, I didn't know exactly what the configuration was going to be. So so what happened was in 2001, immediately after 9-11, somewhat... Surprisingly, maybe even shockingly, the Pentagon didn't have a plan for Afghanistan. You think they've got a plan for everything, including invading Canada and stuff, but All they right. did not have a plan for in- invading Afghanistan and toppling the Taliban regime. The CIA, because of going back to um, the Soviet occupation in the 1980s was obviously funding the Mujahideen there uh, or us was funding and the CIA was funneling the money to the Pakistani intelligence who was paying the Mujahideen and the and the U.S. was providing them with Stinger missiles and all that. Now, the U.S. kind of left Afghanistan, including the CIA, after 1989 when the Soviets pulled out because it was seen as a a, a Soviet, um, you know, Cold War proxy uh, battle. But throughout the 1990s, there was an, a small cadre of people in the CIA that that remained uh, in contact with with Afghanistan, and then increasingly as bin Laden and al-Qaeda were there and the, the Taliban regime was hosting them, it became you know, a big issue within CIA, particularly within the counter-terrorism center. And they were, I mean, George Tenet famously talked about the system blinking red before 9-11. we would had the East Africa embassy bombings in 1998, the, the coal bombing in October 2000. So, and, and there was this real expectation that, the US was going to get hit. So the CIA was desperate to get bin Laden. I mean, they argue that the Clinton administration didn't let them, and then the Bush administration wasn't really interested. But they were, but on 9-11, they were they were ready. They were ready. And the Pentagon wasn't. So basically, Kofa Black, who was the CDC director in CIA, pitched the plan to Bush and, and Bush went for it. And the idea was that these teams of CIA operatives would go into Afghanistan and, and be the pathfinders for the Green Berets. Now, the teams weren't already formed. So Team Alpha, there were eight, eight members, right? And the nucleus was uh, four paramilitaries. But there were also two case officers, so we mentioned them both already, David Tyson, the Uzbek speaker based in Tashkent, and J.R. Seeger, who was actually based in San Francisco but had been in Islamabad and was a Dari speaker. There was also um, a medic, a physician's assistant called Mark Rausenberger who was ex-military, but not, not a paramilitary, although he subsequently transitioned to become a paramilitary years later. And Justin Sapp, who was a Green Beret, who was the sort of eighth, eighth man on the team, and he was there to, as a sort of liaison um, with the Green Beret, with the ODA coming in, but also because the CIA didn't really have enough people, you know, didn't have enough paramilitaries to populate all these teams. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the other teams had mem- serving members of SEALs and Delta Force in them because there just weren't enough CIA paramilitaries. But the idea was that, But you know, there was lots of kind of debate and jockeying and the CIA argument is that the Pentagon was dragging its feet because it wasn't in charge and they were worried about search and rescue cover for teams going in. And so ideally I think the CIA would have wanted to, and it would have made more sense for the Green Berets and the CIA teams to go in. But in the end, Hank Crumpton, who was beneath Kofa Black in CTC, his, idea, he, I mean, he said to time Frank's, "Like, we want you with us, but we're we're going in." So the CIA went in first. Now, September the twenty sixth, there was a the Jawbreaker team had gone into the Panjshir Valley, which was sort of a safe zone controlled by the Northern Alliance. The Team Alpha was the first team into enemy territory behind Taliban lines. They landed on October the seventeenth, and the Green Berets of ODA five nine five, famously the Horse Soldiers, they came in three days later. And the way they were, I mean, they were they were brothers on the ground. I mean, they mm-hmm. they they had a great relationship. They looked after each other, but they had kind of distinct missions, which were sort of complementary. So, the, the Green Berets focused on the Taliban, and the tactical, and in particular, coordinating airstrikes with the cavalry charges, nineteenth-century-style cavalry charges by Dostum's men. The CIA concentrated on Al Qaeda. Um, and intelligence on al-Qaeda and and looking beyond the Taliban to the people who'd um, carried out 9-11 and, and who, who uh, were planning further attacks, and also the sort of the politics, the so sort of the tribal rivalries, so Dostam's alliance stroke rivalry with the Tajik warlord in the area, Atta Mohammed Noor, which could have easily gone pear-shaped but didn't, the CIA sort of dealt with this. So they had they had different roles on the ground, even though they were sort of co-located most of the time.
1: So it sounds like the CIA was establishing you know relationships with tribal leaders and so forth. But who um who handled the cash?
0: <laughs> the CIA handled the cash. Right. I mean there was the Green Berets had some cash, but not nearly as much. Um, but the, the CIA <laughs> they had, had, they, three, had ta- they had
1: twenties but the CIA had hundreds, right? Hundred the CIA hundred hundred
0: certainly girls. had a The CIA had Team Alpha had uh, three million dollars in non-sequential hundred-dollar bills. So that was used to pay Dostum. Dostum got a million dollars, you know, when when the CIA landed, and it was to uh, grease the wheels, you know, to persuade Taliban units to switch sides. Um, I mean, it did distort the local economy because they only had hundred-dollar bills. So you wanted to buy four sheep. That was a, that was a hundred dollars, which was sort All of right. The annual salary for some villager there.
1: No change. But yeah, that's it's certainly
0: part
1: of it. It's interesting. I mean, just to jump ahead a little bit, um, you know, you mentioned the Catilla the Hun and, and even I think even Genghis Khan, like before they, you know, attacked somebody or battled, they say, oh, let's make a deal. See if this is necessary. If you want to give up and give us all your livestock and your everything else, uh, we don't have to fight. And it seems like that's sort of a cultural uh standard pre-procedure before any battle it's like well can we can we make a deal here first yeah and uh i was just wondering if i mean ultimately that kind of what happened um you know in the rec- recent months as well was that a surprise to you
0: well it was a surprise to me because in the in on the one hand you have afghan warlords and afghan fighters who are as brutal as anybody you know but on the other hand as you you know you perceptively point out if they can avoid that bloodshed they will i mean we clearly saw it um, last month when um, the Taliban, it was a, a sort of a bloodless victory. And actually a CIA officer who was in in um, Afghanistan in 2001, he sort of described to me and, and said, well, part of it's human nature. Um, you know, if defeat is inevitable, are you going to die for that defeat? Or are you going to go home and try and, you know, get out or, you know, do a deal? But certainly mm-hmm. it's very much part of Afghan tradition to do a deal. And, I mean, Dostum, uh, the Uzbek warlord that Team Alpha was with, I mean, he was notorious for switching sides and he'd fought for the Soviets against the CIA-backed Mujahideen in the 1980s. And, you know, I mean, I think he he always kept his own personal interests, but the interests of his Uzbek ethnic group, you know, uh, uh, you know, that's his consistency, really, like whatever's best for us. But the problem is for the CIA to navigate the potential for treachery the double dealing. I mean, that was pretty difficult. And the centerpiece of the book really is the Battle of Kalajangi, the prisoner mm-hmm. uprising, Kalajangi where Mike Spahn, was killed. That resulted from a sort of an Afghan deal, a deal between Dostum and Mullah Fazl, who's now back in government, the Taliban commander in, in northern Afghanistan at the time, where they did a deal for a surrender. And it was done by, it was all very murky, about whether the Arabs were going to be allowed to leave, and or, or whether they were going to be handed over to the Americans, and the Afghans were just going to be allowed to go home, and there was money involved—half like a
1: million, half a million dollars—you said,
0: right? Dostum got a half a million dollars for, se- you know, for safe passage for, for 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 some of the for some of the Al Qaeda guys, and that the CIA never really knew what was absolutely what was going on, and their sort of view of it was, well, this is Afghanistan; it's their fight you know, it's going to be an Afghan deal. But the problem was the the surrendering prisoners weren't searched because it was sort of Afghan honour that you just give up and that's the deal. But these were not Afghans, they were mostly Arabs and it turned out it was sort of a Trojan horse sort of operation. So although in this early period there was considerable success uh, with just, you know, hundreds of Americans on the ground rather than, you know, 100,000 plus, you also see the seeds of that sort of complexity and the things that would come back to haunt the U.S. over the subsequent 20 years. And certainly these Afghan deals and, you know, bloodless surrenders and everything, that was that was very much part of it.
1: You have a line in the book from, well, the CIA officer, David Tyson, I guess he was dealing with Dostrom and he was pretty blunt about it. He said, listen, you will use us and we will use you to get to mazar sharif and then we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. And Dostrom understood that. You know, he's like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, that's imp-
1: I can work with it. Yeah.
0: I mean, in some ways, that's, you know, that was a sort of a hallmark of this period that no alliance is sort of enduring or, I mean, it's based on self-interest. And at that moment, the U.S. had not wanted to help the Northern Alliance overthrow the Taliban before 9-11. The U.S. was certainly interested in getting to, getting to Al-Qaeda and starting to become interested in killing bin Laden. Around that period. But it took 9-11 for the interests to align. And they they weren't different. I mean, the US they wanted to get rid of the Taliban so they could get at Al-Qaeda, but the Northern Lights didn't really care that much about Al-Qaeda. It was really the Taliban. So it was just, you know, it was a mutual self-interest in in those in those months. But then, as that kind of scene in the book, you know, it sort of foretells really, those interests started to sort of diverge once Mazarie Sharif had been captured and then then you're in a whole different sort of world
1: you mentioned uh the fort uh, Kali Zhengji. At your, i mean your book describes it operation in detail i mean it's it's uh it's gut wrenching it it's just its it seems like something that I just never seen before
0: yeah yeah, it was incredible
1: you you went back there you said there's been some landscaping that's been done on the place <laughs> and uh I have to say you you did describe the basement of the pink. Rune, do you remember how you
0: describe? house, yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. Remember how you described the basement?
0: I can't remember the exact exact words. You said
1: dank and spectral.
0: <laughs> yes, not- that's right. <laughs> I've yeah, not yeah. been able to get that out of my head. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. so yes, I was there in November 20, 2020, Yeah, last November, and it happened. So happened. I mean, I was it was it was pretty hard to get in there actually because some Pashtun general was commanding it, and it was all you know the usual Afghan thing. So I, it took me several weeks longer to get there than than I'd anticipated and actually when I was there I was there on November the 26th 2020 which was exactly to the day like 19 years after there being prisoners in there I mean Mike Span was killed on the first day of the uprising which was November the 25th mm-hmm. and so yeah I mean that cellar basement you know it felt I mean, I don't really believe in ghosts, but it felt like it was haunted, you know? I mean, yeah. a lot of people had died down there. Um, it had been full of all these Al-Qaeda prisoners. It had been people had drowned. People had been there with wounds. There'd been grenades exploded in there through sort of because of divisions within the Al-Qaeda fighters. And it hadn't, you know, the bo- you know all the bodies and body parts and stuff were gone, but there was still a lot of the detritus of war, you could see some of the marks from ex- explosives on the walls. Um, there was bits of graffiti from I don't think from during the uprising, but from before and afterwards, like American soldiers have scrawled st- stuff on it. And, you know, there were bits of munitions and, you know, kind of mortar parts and parts of rifles all around. And there was a lot of mud down there and I think yeah, spectral was. You know, it was really, it was really eerie down there.
1: Yeah, it felt like the epicenter of your book somehow. I mean, if it if it was Hearts of Darkness, that was going up the. You know, it was yeah. going up the Congo to that to that spot. Yes, and-
0: right. It, it, it felt like a sort of like a ground zero kind of thing mm-hmm. um, of the war in those early weeks. And actually, I was at ground zero although I'm not sure it's even called Ground Zero anymore, but, you know, the, the site of the World Trade Center this weekend. And when you go to these places and you think so many people have died here and so much has happened and that this was the center of something and now it's sort of peaceful. Right. It, it definitely gives, you know, you get these vibes from it.
1: Yeah, especially, I mean, someone that with so much information to draw from about these events it must be overwhelming sometimes so i wanted to i can i noticed with google maps is that you can't quite get the same granularity with afghanistan (laughs) i don't know why they they, they're like they're not going to give you too much detail about this place right now but i mean there's something i didn't realize about it. i always thought like the northern alliance had kind of moved south you know toward uh toward kabul but uh this was kind of a northern like a northern movement
0: yeah yeah so i mean the northern alliance was you know, non-Pashtuns, um, Uzbeks, Tajiks, Turkmen's, And I mean, it was very controversial at, at the time that, you know, the Northern Alliance wanted to go to Kabul. Actually, Dostum wanted to go into the East and go after bin Laden. But the Pashtuns, you know, even the you know non-ta- non-Taliban Pashtuns didn't want that to happen. And the Bush administration as well was trying to keep the northern alliance back so they did go to Kabul, but they didn't go any further south and and they really were sort of they really were northern
1: i just wanted to throw one other thing in you you mentioned uh outliers i mean there's some characters that showed up obviously an alliance of convenience but there were iranians there as well
0: yeah absolutely so when team alpha landed on october the 17th 2001 there was a little kind of powwow with uh, the various sort of tribal leaders. <laughs> and there was a guy There was a guy who was introduced, Dostum introduced JR, the chief, CIA chief, Team Alpha, to, you know, our Iranian friend, you know, and he was a guy from Quds Force. And um, so JR took Dostum aside and was like, you know, listen, um, <laughs> that's not really going to work, you know. I mean, obviously the Iranians are Shia and um, they hated the Taliban. The Taliban had, you know, murdered a lot of his Iranian uh, diplomats in, in Masary Sharif there's no love lost and there is this sense of you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend but that was that was pushing it a bit too far but the Iranians were sort of always around and then after Mike span was killed the Iranian guy was in Masary Sharif by then and he sort of you know went up to um the team alpha guys and sort of said you know offered his commiseration sort of from one professional to another so it was sort of you know yeah the iranians were there you know they were supplying the northern alliance i remember it actually happened a little bit after the period of of the book like um, a month or two afterwards Uh, i remember green beret major telling me about how you know he was having to deal with the american supply chain and it was slow and everything and then in the meantime the iranians just flew in a load of uniforms for the northern alliance you know so it's like this sort of power play everyone's trying to sort of get in there
1: God, it's like everybody's investing. Yeah. So there was some competition going on. I mean, a team jawbreaker. I mean, there's a book by Gary Burnson. I read that a while back. Yeah. And um, it seemed like they were the front, kind of the front runner of attention, but things kind of shifted to Task Force Dagger. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's, it's interesting. So, yeah. So Gary Schroen uh, was a, at the time 59 years old. He was like a Lieutenant General equivalent, an SIS-3, Special Intelligence Service three. It's a very senior guy who's was about to retire, like a storied uh, agency career, and he was sort of called back, called back into service, and he was with the Jawbreaker team that landed in the Pancho Valley on se- September the twenty-sixth. So, and and Gary Schroen's Sh- book was called First In, and after a few weeks, he was succeeded by Gary Burnson, who was more junior, but you know still a big hitter, and um, he did a book called Jawbreaker, and that was both of those were about that team, which. Kind of expanded and split. But they were based in the Panjshir Valley, which was Northern Alliance controlled. And the CIA, including David Tyson, was one of them, had been flying in and out of the Panjshir Valley from Dushanbe into Tajikistan, usually uh, for the previous couple of years. And also the Tajiks, Ahmad Shah Massoud had been assassinated on September the 9th, and the Tajiks uh, under Fahim Khan weren't really moving. I mean, there was a lot of friction between the US military and the CIA. And the Tajiks in the Panjshir Valley, because it seemed they just wanted money. They wanted the U.S. to bomb everything. In contrast, so Team Alpha was in Taliban-controlled territory, sort of behind the lines. And they were with Dostum, a lot of rivalries and tensions between the Tajiks and the Uzbeks. But Dostum wanted to fight. He wanted to get his men on horseback and take the fight to the Taliban. And that was great for the CIA. And that was great for Team Alpha. And so what you have was the developed would be the sort of Team Alpha sort of identified with Dossam and the Uzbeks, Jawbreaker, you know, identified with uh, Fahim Khan and the, and the Tajiks. And there was, you know, there's only finite resources. There's only so much air power. Um, there's only, you know, so many supplies. And so Team Alpha and, and Jawbreaker, you know, I mean, there were a few strongly worded kind of exchanges but you know everyone's everyone's on the same side but there's a kind of a, I mean I think a largely healthy competition yeah. where you know drawbreaker saying we need this and team alpha saying no no we we're moving we're fighting we need the airstrikes and we we need the supplies and ultimately CIA headquarters Hank Crumpton who I mentioned before he kind of sided with team alpha like for the time being the focus is going to be on on dostum and team alpha because you know they're doing the fighting and we need to take Mazari Sharif, and then once that's fallen, then we can move on Kabul. You know, so so Mm -hmm. there was an interesting interplay between J R Seeger on Team Alpha and Gary um, Shrone on on Jawbreaker.
1: An interesting compare that you compare dostram to George Patton because that event sort of seemed like you know Bastone, where everybody's kind of hankering like, how are we going to get this done? And people are disagreeing. And Patton's like, I'm going to have two divisions there in
0: 48 hours. Like what? Well, so that was J R. Who who, he listened to. to Dostum talking to his troops. And um, I don't know whether he was speaking, he might, he might have been speaking in diary because some, some of the troops would have been Tajik and, and JR was a, a diary speaker. But anyway, he, or maybe uh, Dostum translated it for JR afterwards, or maybe it was pretty clear the way he was talking from his sort of delivery. But he gave, Dostum gave this sort of like blood curdling sort of speech <laughs> Um, which was, you know, reminded Jr. of, you know, the Patton speech at the start of the movie.
1: Grease the wheels of our tent or feed our horses or something. Or, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah,
0: the, that, exactly. And I mean, the movie version of the Patton speech was sort of cleaned up from, the, I think, the the original version. But I mean, I think there were parallels. I mean, that, Dost- I mean, I met Dostum, I interviewed him last year. And I mean, he, you know, I mean, I was going to say d- doesn't take prisoners. Well, he does, but, you know, sometimes the prisoners don't fare too well. I mean, this this is a guy who has blood on his hands and a bit like, um, I feel like that, that Marine Corps sort of motto, you know, no no better friend, no worse enemy. He's he's that type of character.
1: I don't know if you mentioned that container incident. I mean, were, were there dust? Was there any proof that Dustrum was involved in that or was it just...
0: So, yes. So, it was a bit... That, that whole story is a bit of a rabbit hole, you know? Right. So, I didn't want to, you know go down it sort of too deeply but i i it's certainly in there and i asked him about it and i was shocked because i expect so basically the container allegation was that after kalajangi so in late november there were loads of thousands of prisoners being moved from uh, kundus in the east who were being moved west to to shebigan which was uh, there was a prison there and it was Doston's stronghold and the allegation uh, was that a lot of prisoners were either suffocated in contain- in shipping containers, which, by the way, is a common mode of keeping and transporting prisoners in Afghanistan. I mean, containers have been very much associated with atrocities over the years, you know, people baking to death in the sun or containers being dropped in rivers and people drowning, all sorts of sort of bad stuff. But the allegation was that Dostum had, because he was angered by Kalajangi, had killed the numbers. I mean, in Afghanistan, numbers are have a sort of a life of their own you know hundreds or thousands and different numbers were being buried, bandied around and you know people found some bodies in the desert well this was afghanistan 2001 there was lots of bodies all over the desert um but anyway so but this allegation sort of persisted and human rights groups would talk about you know dash the bodies in the desert and so i asked awesome about it and i expected him to sort of just deny everything but he so he said well mm, you know it wasn't so basically wasn't as bad as people say but yeah there was one of my commanders and you know two of his brothers have been killed by the taliban and he was emotional young man and he was sort of very upset and yeah so he did shoot up a container and did did kill a few prisoners and so you know i mean uh, i mean he sort of downplayed it and he certainly said there were no americans involved and i there's been never been any credible evidence that Americans were involved. But I think some, you know, Dostum admitted that one of his men, and you can, you can kind of debate how much he would have known or whatever, or maybe he was just sort of downplaying it, but he did say that, um, you know, one of his commanders had, had killed some prisoners in that period. But I mean, you don't want to be callous about this, but this is Afghanistan. There was death everywhere in that period. And not least from the Taliban.
1: You mentioned, uh, Faisal before you said he's, he's got a, a, a job in the new, um, the new regime or government, I'm not really sure. But I was just wondering, like, yeah. Dost- Dost- is Dosterman, is he's in um, Uzbekistan right now? Does he have any aspirations going forward or is he kind of retired?
0: Uh, I don't think someone like Dosterman ever retires. You know, it's like you retire when you go to the grave. He's in Uzbekistan. We know that there's been resistance from a small number of Tajiks in the Panche Valley. I'm not actually sure exactly what the status of that is right now. Um, I was reading. But, that it's you know,
1: recently, been crushed. That's that's today's, today's news. Yeah,
0: right. I mean, I mean, they're pretty beleaguered. Um, I do think there will be an Afghan resistance at some point because um, I mean, that's that's the flip side in a way of the bloodless victory. I mean, it just majority of Afghans didn't vote for the Taliban and don't support them. Even a majority of Pashtuns that that will be sort of questionable. And you know, and the other minorities added together amount to um, a majority. Of, of Afghans, so I'm sure there will be a resistance and an opposition to the um, to the Taliban. And I I know that <laughs> Dostum is talking about that. I mean, he sees himself as the sort of historic leader of the Uzbeks and and the Afghans in the north. Also, Mullah Fazl, who was the Taliban commander, and he also commanded Al Qaeda troops um, in northern Afghanistan in 2001. He is back in the new Taliban government with his deputy minister for defense, the same position he had in 2001. And I think, I mean, he is a sworn enemy of Dostum. I mean, he's accused of genocide by, not just by the CIA, but, you know, human rights groups, massacres of Hazara, Shia. I mean, he's a really evil, evil character. And I, and I think Dostum would really like to um, kind of rejoin the fight against Fasel. So, I mean, I do feel... The what's happening at the moment um, is not is not the end of the story with all this. I mean, um, it's not the final chapter yet.
1: Do you suggest any particular uh, region, tribes or groups that are going to kind of maybe start or join this kind of uprising? Or would it be something civil like out of Kabul after having seen, you know, a different environment of human rights and so forth?
0: Well, you, I mean, in a way, the situation we have now is sort of uncannily similar to, to what we had before 9-11 you know, where you have a holdout group, possibly, maybe not now, in the Panjshir Valley, but the Taliban at least nominally controls the rest of the country. Now, the country is very different. It's, the population's has nearly doubled in, in the last 20 years. Obviously, we have a generation of Afghans that's had a me- measure of modernity and, and much more sort of freedom than they had under the sort of medieval regime of the Taliban. And so I do think the Taliban is going to have a hell of a job governing this place, you know, it's fractured and ethnically broken up. But I think I think there will be there will be kind of like a s- sort of civil disobedience and opposition from women and uh, the population more generally in Kabul and in urban areas. But you also just have to look at the traditional rivals of the Pashtuns, never mind the Taliban. So you're looking at Uzbeks, t- same people, Tajiks, Turkmen's in in the north, and they're never going to accept Pashtun rule. Never mind Taliban rule. It might be a short-term deal, but these are these are enemies, and so it remains to be seen how it how it plays out. But um, I think we're going to see the same groups opposing the Taliban as we had in the nineteen nineties.
1: How is reading is is, is uh, bordered by five countries? But if you look at the is it the Khyber Pass If at the very end of it? There's uh, or no the Hindu Kush at the very end of it. It's China. So Afghanistan does actually have a small border with China, or no?
0: Yeah, so it's six countries. So if you start at the top. If you start at the top left, you know you've got Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, which is where the Americans came in, flew in from in two thousand and one, and then Tajikistan, where you know, which the Americans were also using as a staging post in the pre nine eleven period to, to fly into the Panjshir Valley. And obviously, there's an affinity between the ethnic Tajiks of Afghanistan and the Tajiks of Tajikistan. But then, when you go just beyond to the to the um, the northeast of Afghanistan, there's this little finger just into China. And there's this little border with China. And then below that, you have Pakistan, which goes all the way to the east and round to the bottom of Afghanistan in the south. And then over in the west, you've got Iran, you know. So it's a pretty complicated sort of, mega. You, you can see why there's been conflict and um, difficulties in this country.
1: Yeah, that, that's a lot of neighbors, you know. Right. Well. <laughs>
0: yeah. And they're all, you know, they're all trying to fill the vacuum. You know, America's left, so there's a power vacuum, and they're all trying to fill it.
1: I did have, there was another one interesting thing I looked at. When I first saw the pictures in these pages, I thought, wow, why are these guys, this Team Alpha, right? Because, um, you know, I've done a little bit of, I'm not really a crazy outdoorsman, but I've done, you know, some hiking and backpacking. And uh, and I thought, why are these guys, th-? the one thing you don't want to wear is jeans because they get wet, they don't dry. And I thought, why are these guys all wearing jeans?
0: Yeah. So there's been a lot of like amusement about the picture, not least from the team alpha guys, because there were lots of jokes about, you know, Hey, they look like a bunch of dads going on a fishing trip. Um, Oh, you know, it's um, people, you know, meeting up for a hike um, after drinking their sort of homebrew beer or all this type of stuff. And if you look at them, they do look kind of ordinary mm-hmm. and they kind of look a little bit goofy with some of their gear. So it speaks to a few things. I mean, later on there were elite warriors in this team. Four of them were paramilitaries and all eight of them had a military background. I mean, the one who had the least military experience was David Tyson, who had done two short stints in the army in the eighties. And of course, you know, one of the ironies of what happened is that he was the one who was put, who had this situation where he was in an extremist and he had to kill or be killed. And he ended up killing, you know, dozens of Al-Qaeda getting out. And he was the last person out of those eight you would have put in there. But, but you know, Tyson and uh, Seeger were case officers. They weren't, you know, and then there was, a, there was a medic. And so it wasn't like SEAL Team 6 going in to get, get bin Laden in, in 2011 with night vision and helmets and, right. and, and a plan that they, they kind of executed a hundred times before and if something went wrong. So these guys, so they couldn't take in any military kit. Like nothing. So Justin Sapp, who's still serving colonel, was a Green Beret captain. You know, he didn't even take his ID card in. No military kit because, they, you know, if they were captured and, you know, they wanted to be sort of anonymous and all that. They didn't. I mean, this is astonishing. They did not take in helmets or body armor because they, the philosophy was we're, you know, we're living with and fighting alongside the Afghans. And so if we come in like sort of spacemen, you know, all protected, then the message to them is sort of our lives matter than yours and matter more than yours. And and, and that's not going to be right. So no body armor, no helmets. And 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 also this was an improvised mission. The core of the team was these four paramilitaries. But the others, a lot of them barely knew each other before they got into Afghanistan. It was sort of it was cobbled together, you know, for, for this mission. And it was also I mean, the CIA wasn't expecting to have to do this. And so they didn't have like an equipment store where they just went in. It was like, no, here's the here's a government credit card. Go to REI and get some camping gear. And so that that's what they did. And so that's how they ended up uh, looking like this. David Tyson in particular was in Tashkent, and so he was added to the team at the end, and he just had whatever he could get mm-hmm. get from Tashkent. So he had these boots which were sort of like leisure boots kind of, you know, they weren't even proper combat boots, and he wore them throughout for you know more than 40 days and they're now in the cia museum wow and his his son describes them as dad's lucky boots and they do look like kind of dad boots
1: are those boots dank and spectral
0: (laughs) (laughs) They might be pretty dank and smelly
1: (laughs) but the jeans the jeans though i have to admit though i did talk to somebody who's you know from texas and works um, and they said you know it's just a more comfortable ride if you're wearing jeans because the rest of your legs if their jeans are tighter also kind of absorb the bump a little bit i was just wondering if yeah but no, I mean, might... mike
0: mike wore jeans throughout and he died you know he he was wearing a pair of jeans when he died and and the afghans noticed it because they would call jeans cowboys so when they were talking about recovering mike Spann's body fakir commander fakir who's uh, one of the afghan commanders who who actually was recently evacuated by uh, amongst others some of the team alpha people you know uh, sort of 20 years on he said you know to david he says david was was mike wearing cowboys you know and that and and that was his jeans you know
1: there was actually a Mike's. there was actually a, i was looking at the uh google maps and just below the fort is a is an encampment or a base named after mike band. do you know about that
0: yeah so camp mike span it was handed over to the afghans eventually and presumably the taliban either occupies it or or has has trashed it but um it's funny these names and of course we had a lot of memorials of bagram that were sort of left behind or had to be destroyed and it sort of it's funny it takes me back to iraq i remember talking to a soldier in iraq in about 2000 and probably 2004 or five and he was like i don't want to get killed i'm not going to get killed here because i don't want i don't want some damn chow hall to be named after me you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true you would go to these you know you go to these like Oh, they call so, them DFAT, the dining so, facility. Yeah, yeah. I know, like, and it'd be like specialist Joseph P., you know, Schweitzenberger, you know, dining facility. Yeah. And it's like, and this young guy I've just been like, no way is that happening to me. And of course, the other thing about it is, and I'm sure it happened in, you know, in Vietnam and, and it certainly happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, is these things are not forever. So you sort of have, you know, like, I mean, I feel it now with Camp Mike's ban, you know, it's sort of, It was a tribute to him, but you know, ultimately, you know, the Taliban got it. So it's kind of a, it sort of adds a little, another little tinge of sadness to the whole thing.
1: But one thing your book really brings out is, I mean, these guys were, you know, they were patriots. They, some had served in the military. There was, there were career, you know, CIA guys, but they were, they were forced with a problem that we probably hadn't seen since. Maybe Laos, you know, with with uh, you know the relationship between Air America and you know CIA agents out in uh, working with indigenous forces, and and then you topple that with all the different tribes, and then you know they're on horseback, and then there's you know hundreds and hundreds of of POWs with different allegiances, and you have CIA and you have special operations, and it's just mind-boggling the the scope and the complexity of the problems that, you know, officers like Mike Spann had, had to deal with. And, uh, you know, your book really kind of brings it, brings that out. And, um,
0: thank you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, thank you. I mean, you see, you know, they, this was a successful period. They defeat, they topple the Taliban government almost as quickly as the Afghan Ghani government sort of toppled, um, uh, last month, but success was not guaranteed. And so this was all about improvisation adaptability and, you know, one of the things I sort of loved about getting to know these these guys, they are certainly very high caliber people and sort of, you know, all sort of type A personalities and linguistic expertise, highly intelligent, you know, military expertise, but they're also real people and ordinary mm-hmm. people, ordinary in the best sense of the word. I mean, David Tyson, who I've got to know extremely well, you know, he speaks seven or eight languages. I mean, he was an expert on... Turkmen shrines, you know, he, he, he did a dictionary, uh, he wrote a dictionary on, you know, the Turkmen language, and he speaks Uzbek like a native. So, I mean, he's not your average person. But when you meet him, you see him, you wouldn't give him, you know, a second glance on the street, ex- extremely humble, and more than willing, and I feel like it added an extra dimension to, look, to talk about his own sort of human frailties. And, you know, he was extraordinarily brave. But when Mike's van was killed and, and he had to he had to kill all these Al Qaeda guys um, or be killed himself, but he was like, I didn't have a choice. You know, it was just it was instinctive. I didn't I didn't even have a split second to decide. I just the training kicked in. You know, muscle memory kicked in, and then he was like, two days later, you know, he said, I was so scared, my rifle was not. You know, I was. He, what's that knocking? And it was it was my rifle knocking against a tank because my hands were shaking shaking so much, and so he was able to taught me through the sort of feelings and emotions and the psychology he had as a sort of ordinary human being, as well as, you know, a CIA officer. And I sort of felt that in a way, these men were, they were extraordinary and they were in an extraordinary situation, but there was also something ordinary about them, something of the every man about them, which I thought was something I really, really tried to capture.
1: They're also a really observational bunch too, aren't they? I mean, even, even David Tyson, like talking about his own experience and you know oh, how yeah. he how it took him a moment to realize. Oh wait, we're actually being attacked. You know, like these kind of honest, and, and yeah. honest observations and admissions.
0: Well, what I, fa- what I found was, and I found this in sort of other projects, is is people the memory is so different. Like some people have a great memory for dialogue. You know, other people can't can't ever remember what was said, but they can remember distances, directions. details of military hardware how you know how many shots were fired and so that was how it was with this and that's why it was great that there were six surviving members of team alpha and so you kind of triangulate and like justin Sapp, who was the green beret had a great a great memory for dialogue and humor and the and the anecdote jr was was fantastic sort of on the history and and the tribal mechanics and david on the tyson on on the sort of psychology and when you put it all together And then also there were diaries. You know, David Tyson kept a diary, which he wasn't supposed to do, but he did. I'm glad he did. And then I got a lessons learned sort of document from Special Operations Command. So useful bits of documentation that that can help. But um, it's a great feeling to sort of put it all together. And each different document or each different person gives you something else. And you can build up a very kind of textured picture, which is hard to get if you just say, I don't know, ghosting someone's um, memoir for them where it's just going to be one person's kind of memory.
1: I mean, I really appreciate the way you've consolidated. I mean, you've crafted a real compelling and seamless story, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Congrats with the reception of the book. Thanks for being on the live drop.
0: I enjoyed it, and I appreciate the interest. And uh, yeah,
1: thank you. So that's The Drop with Toby Harndon, his first uh, his book, First Casualty, it's available now. It's quickly becoming required reading as reviews continue to come in. Check out tobyharndon.com for more information and the show notes as well. Um, I just want to mention I'm putting together another season of 25 episodes of The Live Drop. And each episode is it's about 5 to 10 hours of work depending on preparation, research, length of show. Um, I like to keep the transmission clean of advertisements and sales pitches and Basically, I'm just a man standing in front of a microphone asking to be uh, funded. So just check out the show notes for ways to contribute. There's a live drop Patreon with exclusive content for subscribers and a one-time pad PayPal if you like what you're hearing. Um, Thank you for everyone and keep listening.